up on this week's show, why Nintendo rejected a new F-Zero game. The most hilarious Doom clone ever. And we celebrate the triumph of the nerds with Robert Cringley. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our wonderful mates at Bitmap Books who've actually just released their biggest project to date, coming in at 652 pages, a guide to Japanese role-playing games covering the entire history of the genre from 1982 to 2020. It actually sold out in its first weekend on sale, but they are going to be reprinting it and you can find out more and pre-order at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 283, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another Geek Out session all about retro video games and technology. And that's what this show is about. I mean, we cover all kinds of things that remind us of being kids. You know, it could be unwrapping your Sega Mega Drive at Christmas. It could be those endless summers, going to your friends' houses and playing on their ZX Spectrums and Commodore 64s. Or it could be the launch of Windows 95. I mean, you know, we cover all that kind of stuff here. And I think it's fair to say, I mean, we were just chatting before we recorded then. Outside of doing this show, we like to consume other media I don't know about you guys, but when I'm not doing the show, I spend most of my time, you know, YouTube on in my office watching LGR and Angry Video Game Nerd, you know, all my favourite YouTubers who cover what we talk about pretty much. And also watching retro technology and gaming documentaries as well, because there's so many brilliant ones out there. You know, there's actually a Twitch channel called uh, Video Game Documentaries, I think, and it just shows video game documentaries 24 hours. And it's, oh, well. it's, it's weird because sometimes you come across it and it's like, a deluxe paint tutorial for the Amiga and it's like got 30 <laughs> viewers watching it. But, um, you know, I was looking back at some of my favorite ones the other day and, uh, from candy with Ian Lee is still one of my favorite kind of video game documentaries. Cause it just covers so much and he talks to absolutely everyone. And it was kind of made in a time when video game documentaries weren't that big. I'm very similar to what Dan was just saying. I just find myself pretty much every single night, of my life probably the past 10 years now just watching youtube and it's like you say you you watch these content creators but a lot of the time you are watching the history of video games and systems and computers not not just you know we all watch avgn and stuff like that but you know like you say you catch yourself watching gaming historian who we've had on the stuff and lgr and actually learning about these things from these and, and like you say they're documentaries, you know, they're not yeah, skits. And Kim stuff like Justice that. is good. Kim that. Justice. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And Slopes as well. He's really good with it. And today we're actually going to be going, you know, way before YouTube, 10 years before YouTube was even thought of. And talking to someone who I remember as a teenager watching this um, incredible three part documentary that was on Channel 4 back in 1996. And this was a show called Triumph of the Nerds. Now, I know you're a fan of this as well, Ravi. We've spoken about it before. Oh, yeah, absolutely love it. And, you know, he had absolutely everybody on it. Like, you know, you've got all the Microsoft guys there. You've got um, Steve Jobs there as well, all the Apple guys. You've got, like, Douglas Adams as well. Uh, it's an, an amazing insight to look, look back at when, you know, actually the company's... They were big. They were huge back then. But um, it was the launch of Windows 95. So it was just before the kind of global domination was uh, starting. And oh, it's just amazing. It's kind of a great documentary. And, you know, our guest, Rob Cringley, he's he's covered so much. And he's interviewed some of the best people in the video game and 
in the computer world, like you can't get bigger than Steve Jobs, can you? <laughs> and uh, Bill Gates. Yeah, and I mean, I remember watching Triumph of the Nerds, um, and I mean, you talked 1996, and you know, I, I remember recording it on videotape, but it wasn't like now where you jump on Netflix and binge watch it right through. You had to wait till next week for the next part of it. And before YouTube and that kind of thing, there wasn't really much TV coverage of the history of computers. So I found it really interesting. And it was, um, you know, the first time I'd heard about a lot of these things. And you're right, he did actually capture it at the perfect time, because you're talking mid-90s. A lot of the guys that kind of started the microcomputer revolution, you know, he checked to um, Ed Roberts, you know, the, the guy who made the Altair in here who was still alive at that point. So a lot of those guys were still around then. And, you know, he could interview them from something that, even though it was only about 15 years later, that felt like such an eternity in technology because of how far things had come on from like the Apple One and the Altair to the launch of Windows 95. I mean, there was a massive change in that decade and a half. And also a lot of the people have passed that were on the yeah. documentary. You know, Steve Jobs, you've got Paul Allen as well. Uh, Lee Felsenstein, a lot of people that we've had on the podcast, actually. Well, Lee, Lee Felsenstein's still alive. We'll just put that up there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, was, I, I wasn't doing a list of people that have passed. But, yeah, John Scully as well. <laughs> yeah, just, but you're right, though. Steve Barmer, you know. Well, you're right, though, because, um, I mean, Bob was actually, he was one of the members of the Homebrew Computer Club. And we did an episode with Lee Felsenstein, who was, you know, the, the organiser of um, the club back in the day. But also, he was um, employee number 12 at Apple. He was a very early employee. And you'll hear how, uh, actually, they offered him uh, shares in the company instead of paying him originally, and he turned it down. He said, oh, I'd rather have a salary instead, which um, I imagine he probably kicks himself over today. But also, he ran one of the most... Um, you could say powerful columns in technology back then. He did the uh, the gossip column in InfoWorld magazine, and then also made a documentary later on after Triumph of the Nerds called Nerd Two Point Zero One, and that was kind of a you know, nineteen ninety eight documentary looking back at the history of the internet, back to the ARPANET days and everything. So, you know, he's a really interesting guy, and you'll also hear a little anecdote in here about how um, how Bill Gates told a bit of a fib as well about a story involving a voucher that was uh, quite interesting. So You know, these people are like legendary status. Like, yeah. you know, people probably do business schools on Steve Jobs. And, uh, you yeah. know, there's so many films that have come out. So to actually get somebody's opinion that's sat down with him and met him over this whole period of time, it's a really unique view. And, you know, we ask him about the movies that have been released and the best kind of interpretation and try and get, you know, the, the truth behind it, really. Yeah, and I mean, you bear in mind that, you know, Steve Jobs hired and fired Bob Cringely several times from Apple. I think about three times, actually. So he knows him very well. So it, like you said, it's good to kind of get someone's opinion and stories directly from someone who was there at the time. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited for this week's guest. And, you know, someone who I still regularly watch Triumph of the Nerds. It's on YouTube. And for people who haven't watched it, I'll put it in our show notes. I probably revisit that documentary at least once a year, you know, I still find it really interesting to look back on. So it's going to be a really interesting insight to um, those early days in Silicon Valley with our special guest, Robert Cringely. He'll be coming up in around 20 minutes from now. Now, lots of new stories to get through this week. Let's jump straight in with a Nintendo story. You're a fan of F-Zero, Joe? I am. I, would, I wouldn't say like, oh my God, it's one of my favourite games of all time. But, you know, I've played them all and I had them all growing up as well. But yeah, we've not had one gosh 15 16 years since we had f0 is it is it gx for the gamecube i think was the last one well there was meant to be a new one that was pitched 
to Nintendo. Now, I don't know about you, when I play F-Zero, I've always kind of found the, I don't know if you could say the unrealism of it, quite fun. You know, the fact that it's um, it's not a realistic kind of simulation. It's yeah. very over the top. It's otherworldly. But it turns out that a, uh, a company was actually pitching an ultra-realistic F-Zero game for the Switch that Nintendo said no to. Yeah, so this comes from Giles Goddard, um, who is kind of like Nintendo royalty from back in the day. He, you know, he helped develop Star Fox and Stunt Race FX for the SNES and worked on loads and loads and loads of other games. Um, and he's, you know, former uh, Argonaut uh, oh, software with, with developer Jazz as well. San. With Jazz Sun and those guys, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, his new company, well, they're probably not a new company now, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, uh, Chuhei Lab, I think it's called. They pretty much approached Nintendo. I'm not too sure when this was, uh, but this is in a recent interview that he's done that he said that this happened and essentially made a demo for a hyper-realistic F-Zero and pretty much thought this should be the way F-Zero goes because we've not seen F-Zero in, you know, 15, 16 years. And Nintendo turned them down, you know, which I think is quite sad. But apparently the reason is, is because Nintendo say it's actually really hard for them to bring the classic Nintendo IPs into the modern world from the retro world, which, you know, and that's why they focus on new IPs. But to me, like, I kind of get, I get it. It's an explanation, but I'm I'm sure they're milking a lot of old IPs recently. You know, you know, we've seen about a million Pokemon games and I get it. They're super, super popular and there hasn't been an F-Zero for a long time. But yeah, the hyper-realistic thing, you know, apparently the direction they're going in was with like F-Zero cars. They're like hover cars, aren't they? And you were actually going to have control of like the four, there was going to be four like hover pads on the bottom of the car. And like, that's how you drove the car. And obviously if you smashed into other races and smashed into your, you know, into the side and stuff like that, if you broke or damaged your hover, you know, the hover, whatever you want to call them, the, what would you call them? The things that make it hover. The things that make it hover. <laughs> that's one the of these, one of the, yeah, that's the technical term. If you smash the two on the left side, then your car would flip to the right. Because, because the car isn't balanced anymore, you know, or if you smash the front right one, the car would veer off and stuff like that. So it was like super duper realistic. And I think, you know, I, I understand where they were going with that. Like it's a new idea, but like you say, that isn't F-Zero. F-Zero's kind of like got a kind of comic book feel to it, like that really over the top, kind of like superhero kind of feel to it. Like, you know, you, you're driving like a thousand miles an hour. It was never a simulator. It was never a simulator, you know, down these super, you know, super high tech cities and stuff like that on these pipes and, you know, through underground sewers and stuff like that. So it was a strange take. So maybe that's why Nintendo, maybe Nintendo were like, you know, well, let's give them the nice answer. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Um, But yeah, it's definitely interesting. But you can watch the whole interview on uh, Game Explain. Yeah, it's like uh, a video podcast, isn't it? Yeah, well, I'll like, try and get him on it. It's a really yeah. interesting watch. I'd love yeah, to talk I, f- to I think, to be honest, I think Ravi's asked him a couple of times before. Um, and we've just, you know, diaries haven't ma- m- matched up and stuff like that. But we'll try uh, again. I'm always sniffing around Argonaut. <laughs> <laughs> just outside the building. <laughs> you know, I think you're right as well, because, I mean, to me, simulation kind of experiences are not very Nintendo. They're more arcade games, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, 100%. So it wouldn't feel like a match to kind of Nintendo style. And, you know, playing that kind of game on the Switch, especially when you've got a license like F-Zero. And I think it is admirable that Nintendo are actually quite wary about, maybe a bit too wary sometimes, about bringing back their franchises from the past. Because, I mean, if you get it wrong, we talked about it on the show before, there are a lot of, you know, new games that come out that kind of trade on 
famous games from the past that end up being crap. And yeah. then everyone just gets annoyed at it because you're playing with people's memories. Yeah, there is that aspect. So, you know, you, you're probably right. It probably was that. It probably, it, you know, probably is what they said it is. Um, was there a F-Zero for the Saturn? No, it's strictly Nintendo. So, yeah. So ah, okay. the, the original F-Zero was for, it was a release game with the Super Nintendo. Then you got F-Zero X for the N64. Then you got F-Zero GX, I believe it was called, for the GameCube. And then there was an arcade one called AX. And then there was Maximum Velocity for the Game Boy Advance. And then we've had nothing since then. So, But this was pitched for the Switch and the 3DS. So I imagine it was a couple of years ago because the 3DS... I don't, is the 3DS still... No, the 3DS is still... Um, I've got, I've got a feeling it's just been discontinued recently. Yeah. I believe, I'm, maybe back in the last year. It's a, bit, a little bit too modern so. for us, yeah. isn't it, to know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. We did actually play the original F-Zero by accident at my house the other week, I think, didn't we? When, yeah, we did, uh, actually. I loaded up my, my, my massive collection of ROMs that are all titled incorrectly, <laughs> trying, to, trying to play Mortal Kombat. <laughs> so, uh, great fun. But I think, yeah, if they're going to revisit that franchise, it just needs to be, you know, what the fans want is like a yeah. souped up version of the original, really, isn't it? Yeah, you know? 100%. Give us that Nintendo. Now, speaking of uh, Nintendo franchises that <laughs> made it onto other platforms, what about this? A Dr. Mario clone for the Amstrad CPC. Now, this is called Dr. Roland. I don't if you guys have watched the video to this. I mean, were you guys fans of uh, Dr. Mario back in the day? Because it was quite a unique Mario game, being a puzzler and Mario being a, a doctor. Yeah, I that know you like all these kind of Minsky's furballs and like uh, yeah. puzzle games. And bubble bubble, but I I can never understand what was going on on Doctor Mario for me. It was massively confusing. You know what? I'm going to agree with Ravi there. I mm. didn't play Doctor Mario until I say about six or seven years ago when I picked it up for the Super Nintendo, and I was the same. I never understood what was going on. And I'm not going to sit here and explain the rules of the game to Ravi. Um, you just match the colours of the end of the capsules. But yeah, you match the colours at the end of the capsules. But if you don't know that, until you sit down and play it, you are like, what the hell is going on? But once you sit down and play it, it's quite straightforward. But yeah, this just this couldn't say copyright infringement anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dr. Roland, dear. Well, I, I, I think I know why it's called Dr. Roland, because um, Roland Perry is a guy that we've been after for the podcast. And uh, he's a guy behind the CPC, uh, worked under Alan Sugar, so I guess this is kind of like they've just converted Mario to become Roland Perry. <laughs> yeah, that would it kind make of sense. fits well. <laughs> well, I mean, this is it's got quite an interesting story, this game. So if I'll, I'll put a link um, to the video. You can watch it at Short Gameplay and you can actually download the game as well. Um, I've got an Amstrad CPC recently with a broken keyboard. So when I get that sorted, I mean, there is a whole library of, you know, recent Amstrad CPC ports and games, you know, like the the ones from Batman Group, and they do this thing called the um, the CPC Retro Dev, which is like a competition where all the community come together. I think they run these once a year, and they submit games. And this game was actually a submission for the last one in 2020 that got disqualified. Now, the reason is because it's nothing to do with the game. You know, the game itself is really good, but they actually put out all of the games as a compilation tape. Ah, and okay. they said, you know, that really this is too close to Dr. Mario and Nintendo might end up causing them issues and, you know, the entire compilation then might be pulled. So that's the reason that it didn't make it onto there. Um, as of yet, it is still available to download. And the thing is about Nintendo, I'm not sure how far they kind of go into it. Would they be bothered about a game that was on I, I guess, the Amstrad I guess CPC? The assets aren't the same, but I'm also thinking they should have called it Dr. Sugar. That would have been a... Good one. 
And, and, and I know you say the assets couldn't be the same, but I'm pretty sure they're the same assets. <laughs> I can I could, see pills. I, I could but, be, yeah. I could, yeah, I could be wrong, but it does look really familiar. Like if you showed me that and just said it was Doctor Mario, at a glance, I go, oh yeah. But what's cool is, I mean, it's actually been ported to a system that didn't have a game like that before, which yeah. you know is kind of kind of the great thing about these kind of um, dev jams, you know, where developers get together and they they port often, you know, it's you know, ports of arcade games or stuff that was on other platforms. But I think it's just um, they don't want to tempt the wrath of Nintendo, which is uh, yeah, the wrong dog to tease, I think, in uh, in terms of retro games, isn't it, often? So um, it is out there on its own if you want to give it a download. And, you know, the, we, we've spoke about this on the show before, the, the kind of untapped potential of the Amstrad CPC machines just seems to be getting more realised as time goes on, doesn't it? There's tons of titles coming out. It's really good to see, actually. Uh, it's a scene that, you know... I know, I know. There's a lot of love for the Amstrad, but I didn't really see that there'd be much titles coming out in the future, and I'm just really happy that they are. And uh, you know, it seems to be like focused in Europe, and uh, that's where a lot of the stuff's coming out. But I remember when a lot of the Americans came over. Um, Adam Kurilik, when he came over to play Expo, he was like, "Give me that Amstrad stuff." So um, I can see it might be growing there and interest in America as well. You know, in America, it seems to be the GX4000, you know, the consoleized version of the Amstrad CPC that they all tend to be interested in, I think. Oh, we just buying because, mate, up all the games for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know why this is just because, I mean, obviously consoles were bigger in America than, you know, home computers were here. You know, we, we more had micros, I had you know, the NES and Atari and that kind of thing. So I think for a lot of, particularly YouTubers, it's kind of an untapped platform for them to cover, you know, that side of the pond. So I think there's definitely interest from... Uh, from that side of it, but um, I, I've actually seen an Amstrad um, GX4000. I think I saw one in a game shop in Lincoln, and it was boxed in there probably about two years ago, and they only wanted about 60 quid for it. Yeah, right. I remember they were selling sealed ones for 30 quid on eBay. I mean, Those I days are gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've definitely shut up. But um, yeah, when I get my Amstrad CPC computer working, then... Um, Definitely a huge library of recent ports and games I want to check out on that. So if you want to read more about that and uh, give it a download, I'll put the link in our show notes. Now, we do love first-person shooters on this show. I mean, we've all been fans of FPS games for many years now. Obviously, Doom was the one that changed it all, really, when that came out back in 1993. And there is an article here on uh, CBR.com talking about this um, new retro-inspired shooter that is probably like nothing you've played before. This is Fashion Police Squad. (laughs) This sounds right up your street, Dan. <laughs> Being a fashionista. Exactly. Yeah, so um, obviously back in the day, Doom clones, as they were called, you know, we, we you know, eventually became, as we know them, as first-person shooters. But this is an actual Doom clone. You know, it, it, it looks and kind of plays a little bit like the original Doom, you know, from 1993. So this is currently in its beta form, uh, which you can sign up to play. And it is due to come out on PC. I don't know. I think it's just PC sometime next year, it says. But this looks really wacky and really funny. So Fashion Police Squad, you run around um, the city of Trendopolis, essentially whipping people into fashion. Um, so, so, So the enemies are like people wearing baggy suits and people wearing sandals with socks and stuff like that. People who dress like us. People are dressed like us. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. We're going to be the worst judges of, of bad fashion. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's very in the in the kind of like 
you know, the vein of like Super Noah's Ark and stuff like that and Chex Quest, you know, just that funny kind of, you know, gameplay. But it, it's you, non-violent as well, isn't it? You're not, you're not going around killing. You're not, ki- you're not killing them. No, you, you use like your belt of justice to whip them into fashion. And then you've got like a, your main gun is a shotgun that uh, is called the two die for, but that's spelt dies in like, is it, dying it somebody's clothes like a, or something? A, a singer sewing machine as well. Yeah, you could you um. get a sewing machine as a machine gun as well. And essentially, you know, as you shoot people with these weapons, they, they, you know, their clothes fit them better. And this, stuff this like might that. be a bit too early for, um, for Joe, but do you remember on Channel 4 there was a show? I think it was Davina McCall. It was called Fashion Beast. No. I think it was. And she'd I just run around and shout at people going, you, you look rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take you to the shops. And it was really, really well, aggressive. So. Well, this sounds like the Doom clone of that, <laughs> that TV show. And you know what? This, this is quite funny because for me, I've been on a proper Doom hype this last couple of months. I played through like... Doom 1, 2, and 3, and Doom 64, and the uh, the most recent one, Doom Eternal. And then I was, like, looking for other Doom clones, you know, like Hexen and Blood and stuff like that. So this is probably right up my street at the moment, so I'll, you'll probably find me playing this if you come over anytime soon on the yeah, beta. I, I guess they might update it when the styles update as well. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. suddenly like, oh, flares are back. <laughs> flares are back, so they're going to put flares in there. That'd be quite funny. But, yeah, you know... It, just a little indie game that looks quite fun and you know the graphics have got those proper throwback you know 2d sprites in a 3d you know environment it just looks like a lot of fun really i love that when you you know shoot with your your gun that actually changes their clothes fire clothes at them you know get them looking yeah more stylish you get a message up on the screen it says here you know when a sandals and socks wearing dork transforms the game explains that he's now dapper so it's uh, it does look yeah loads of fun again very tongue in cheek just looks like a bit of a giggle this game as well so uh, I I do like you know that kind of retro FPS vibe anyway so it does look like yeah. a nice different take on it doesn't it exactly. uh, speak, speaking of games that we used to play back in the day that maybe we don't so much anymore flash games Are you guys fan of flash games back in the day. Yeah, yeah, I used to love them. Like, the early internet for me was just Flash games. And, you know, you'd also have Flash animations. And before you could get video and stuff, well, you had that real video that was not good. You had Newgrounds as well, which was Mm. just an absolutely amazing site full of uh, completely sick stuff. Um, Badger, 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 Badger. Yeah, Yeah, Badger, Badger Badger was quite late. I don't know if you remember... uh, some of the earlier stuff. So they had like all your base. Um, yeah. Yeah. They had um, a Numa Numa dance as well. Yeah. Ultimate showdown of ultimate destiny. I, yeah. I was that kind of like, cause obviously I'm a little bit younger than you guys, you know, new grounds for me was every day at school mm. on new grounds. As soon as you got home on new grounds, just trying to watch like dragon Ball Z videos on there. And, <laughs> and uh, like you say, playing all the flash games and stuff like that, but it's being recognized, isn't it? by the um the gdc mm, which is game developers cool. conference yeah yeah and this is um obviously today we look at many franchises that are around today i mean among us is a big game that everyone's playing at the moment and the guys behind that they play they actually made the um henry stickman games that were really popular oh, okay. flash games back in the day and you got stuff like uh, super meat boy and hollow knight they originally started you know as flash games they started on super meat boy well meat boy was on Newgrounds, wasn't yeah, it? yeah yeah newgrounds game yeah 
Yeah, so this is um, Newgrounds is still going today, but obviously it's kind of uh, you know not Flash anymore. You know, been that Flash mm. has been discontinued. Um, but the site creator Tom Fulp, he's actually receiving a special honor at this year's Game Developers Choice Awards as well. So they're saying that really, you know, the because Flash for a while. It got a bit of a bad reputation, particularly when mobile phones started coming out. And we all remember, you know, Steve Jobs was on a mad yeah. mission to kind of destroy Flash, wasn't he, back in the, the well, late yeah. 2000s? It was really insecure as well. Yeah. And like, you know, the amount of update your Flash and then you'd update it off a dodgy site and then something else would come onto it. But Newgrounds always seemed to create it really well. And I think that was the best thing. You went on there and you knew that like there'd be some decent stuff, there'd be some funny stuff. And it was also picked out really well. It wouldn't just be random rubbish. There was there was mm. some hilarious stuff. Oh, God. There's one that stands out when I was a kid, uh, the film Hurricane, and they did a Flash version of that. And I, f- I think the kid's like, I love you, Hurricane, and he just beats him <laughs> up in prison. <laughs> it's, like, it's just stuck with me, that ass. <laughs> It is good, because I mean, really, the, the idea of this award they're giving him or recognising him is really to say that, you know, it, it was a breeding ground and kind of a precursor to the indie game scene that we've got today, mm. you know, these Flash games. Yeah, so. it's the Pioneer Award he's receiving. Okay, yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense, because, you know, these kind of, especially back then, you didn't really mm. find these games before online stores became yeah. available. You weren't getting these games on the N64 and the GameCube and that kind of thing. It was just these little games that you play on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. On your on your lunch break at school, did, <laughs> or did in you IT guys at school. Ever ever tried to code anything in Flash? Um, yes, we, we, we. Funny you should ask that. There was about six or seven of us who really got into Newgrounds at school around two thousand and three, two thousand and four, and we had Flash on our computers at school. So we used to spend our lunch breaks, you know, because you could go into like the IT suite. You know, I'm old enough that my school only had one IT room. <laughs> You'd go into the <laughs> IT room and you know, to do your homework essentially, but we would all make our own new grounds animations and we were all trying to make like, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the actual, it was a stick man show. Yeah. We, the, we, the fighting stick man. On like yeah. The fighting stick man. Yeah. 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 And we, we'd spend hours and hours and hours trying to make these videos. Um, you know, in hindsight, I was terrible at it, but one or two of my friends were really, really good at it. I, I would make websites and uh, flash websites. You'd have to recompile it every time you had to kind of upload it again. Yeah. And they became a bit of a nightmare, but I do remember when MySpace came out, people would replace their whole MySpace with like flash. And yeah. It would be like, wow, this yeah. guy's elite. It was tough to do though. Yeah. I do remember flash websites. I had mates that would make them and you, you know, particularly intros you go on and there'd be like an animation at the start of the website and you click, click to enter and you go into it. I used an Amiga on the internet until around 2001. So when I saw that, not having Flash, Flash didn't work on the Amiga. I was you didn't like, well, even I can't see the loading bar. I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, it was a world of pain. Um, but, you know, after that, yeah, I mean, even though it was a brief period, probably from around, you know, 98 to about 2008, that decade, really. The early 2000s, I think, were kind of the sweet spot for Flash games, but it was definitely mm. uh, you know, a point in time that it is nice to see some recognition and kind of what it did for the industry, I think. so. Uh, and there are actually a lot of those Flash games and old animations you can play at archive.org. They've actually archived a huge collection of those as well, if you want to play them in kind of a little uh, a sandbox environment as well that's a lot safer than installing Flash on your modern machine. So I, I remember look. Shockwave was another one. Shockwave, I Macromedia, think so. Yeah, yeah, Macromedia, yeah. Shockwave, yeah. 
And uh, there was, I remember, Habbo Hotel ran on Shockwave. <laughs> I mean, look, back then a lot of people used to think it was really bloated, but, you know, compared to <laughs> the way the internet is today, probably very streamlined compared to many modern websites, I think. Now, we've had a survey running for a week now, after a bit of a false start the week before, and I just want to say a huge thank oh, you to everyone. survey says, eh, eh. sorry. Survey says, finish your show, it's crap. Uh, no, actually, we, we've had some lovely comments on there. I think at the time of recording this, we got about 460 comments. Um, people filled in the survey, which, uh, you know, I think for any survey, getting that kind of response in, um, well, under a week, really, I mean, most people only accessed it on Friday, didn't they? So in about four or five days, that's incredible. But obviously, the more people we get filling this in, it is going to help us shape this show and uh, make it better for you and also help us attract advertisers to the show in the future as well. So it is really, really useful um, if you guys can go onto our website, theretrohour.com, and leave your thoughts on our survey there. It'll only take you around five minutes to do it, and you could win £100 of retro gaming goodies as well. So £100 to spend on retro gaming goodies of your choice. You know what some people have been saying, though, actually? Some people have actually got in touch with us and said, I filled the survey in, guys, and I'm really sorry, but I love the show the way it is now, so I haven't really been too critical, which <laughs> Even is fine. that helps, you know, because, does, like... Yeah. Um, Every kind of stat, like just seeing the age groups and mm. stuff like that really helps us kind of work it all out. So even if you're, if you're scoring the show really high, that's fantastic feedback as well. Yeah, means we're on the right path. And I mean, there's been some people who have actually given us some great constructive criticism, you know, stuff that we hadn't realised before that we'll definitely take on board. And also, and- there's a little section on there about which systems you'd like to see us cover more in the future. So obviously, when we're looking at guests for the show and new stories to cover, it is really, really valuable to find out which kind of stuff we should be talking about. Yeah, that's that's probably the best kind of feedback that we're getting at the moment, because we can look at exactly the systems like, oh, there's loads of people into that one, actually. Yeah. Let's, let's kind of look in that direction. And it, and it helps us shift the show and kind of know who to ask for interviews. Yeah, so if you've got a spare five minutes, it honestly it's so valuable to us. It'll take you only a couple of minutes to fill it in, and you could win £100 to spend on retro gaming goodies. You'll find the survey right now at theretrohour.com. Now, this will be a good time to give a shout out to our wonderful patrons who, of course, keep this podcast going each week. You know, recently I've been looking at... Um, quite a few different podcasts and I listen you know now that we we do the show remotely over the last 12 months I've become a bit of a, a nerd in in regards to how podcasts actually work and I listen to podcast engineering shows and watch videos about microphones and things like that but there is really podcasting's changed quite a lot since we started doing this show there are kind of like two tiers to podcasting really you've got like the big boys like your you know your Joe Rogans and your Spotify's and your Amazons and then you've got the other side of podcasting which is us guys, three guys who do it off their own back as a passion project. We're not earning millions off doing this, uh, but really we've got a patron just so we can keep the show independent and you can help us out with the running costs of it, really. It's mad to think we're actually up there with the huge big ones. I was looking at the charts the other day and it was like Giant Bomb, IGN, Gardner's Question Time, all of all of the kind of big Those boys. bastards. Yeah, and... and <laughs> Um, and we're kind of up there with them and we're just recording from our bedrooms and you know with you guys support we've been able to do that and it's just fantastic to kind of keep this show going I really didn't think when we started this that we'd be hitting 300 and uh, you know when Dan Dan suggested we do a podcast when we were walking through the meadow (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> skipping through the daisies. Skipping through the daisies, I thought. I didn't even oh. know what a podcast was when he asked me to come on. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm up for that. Yeah. <laughs> it is mad, though. You think, you know, when we had that conversation, God, what was that, 2015? Um, I think we were in Amsterdam, actually, weren't we? We've been to the um, Amiga. 30th anniversary show out there. Yeah. I said we should try doing a podcast. I think we did one episode with Alistair Brimble. We thought we'd put it out there, just see how well it does. Maybe we'll do two or three of them. Uh, and here we are almost 300 episodes later. And like you said, you know, the fact that we are so proud. And you guys should be as well, you know, for getting us there, you know, the fact that we make it into the top 10 in the Apple podcast charts a lot of the time. And we're up there with, you know, IGN and companies like that, which I think is just mind-blowing. So thank you so much for um, supporting our podcast and listening each week. And also, if you can find, you know, a spare couple of quid to throw in the tip jar and help us with the running costs, that is also massively appreciated. And you get some nice perks for helping us out, don't you, Joe? Oh, you always pick me. <laughs> you do. You do get some really, really good perks. We like we like to give back. So um, one of my favourite ones uh, that we give back is the After Hours podcast, which is essentially an extra episode a month where we don't we don't interview anybody or anything like that. We essentially go in kind of that behind the scenes and, you know, we talk a little bit more about ourselves and we also, you know, we review things. We talk about our favourite consoles. We've recently been doing our top five consoles, uh, top five games on those consoles. And then also uh, a series we've been doing on the After Hours is kind of reviewing years in retro mm. gaming haven't we we've recently gone and done the the late 90s and now we've gone into the early 2000s which has been really really fun uh, we also do a hangout a P- patreon google hangout usually is it the last sunday or the first sunday of the month dan <laughs> whenever we can fit it in it's, whenever always, we can it's, fit always, it in. it's always one a month it's always one a month but that's really really fun um i usually end up spending money online while we're doing it buying retro games because people mention off. things don't they people mention like, things. oh yeah i look at and, ebay you know, when we first kind of first started doing that, we thought, oh, like one or two people will come. But, you know, every week without fail, like, you know, 20, 30 people join. And it's, you know, people come on. You don't have to talk. You can just listen. You can just watch. But, yeah. you know, we kind of, we, we don't just talk about retro games. We talk about retro films, retro tech, mobile phones, anything really. You know, MP3 players of, last time, MP3 I think. players last time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then also, of course, anybody who donates to us, um, they do get the show without the adverts. Sometimes you get it a couple of days early. Sometimes you get it about five days early. Sometimes you get it a day early. And you also get a shout out in the Hall of Fame. Um, everybody gets that who donates as well, which is, you know, really awesome. I think you about covered it all there, Joe. You know, actually, I think I though, did. <laughs> looking, looking at the survey respondents, some people were saying that we enjoy the news, we enjoy the interview that you do, but it would be nice to hear you guys talking about your memories and what you've been up to and what you've been collecting. That is the After Hours podcast. That is the After Hours. Yeah. That is the After Hours. We do, we kind of like, we start it with that and then we do what we're going to do. So talk about a year or review a game, a few games or something like that. But we kind of talk about our last kind of month in gaming, don't we? And, and yeah. a lot of the time it's longer than an hour. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that we, we don't limit, limit ourselves on like on this It's show. unedited as well, isn't it? The After Hours. Yeah. Yeah, there's one guy the other day, actually I saw one of his survey a guy who responded to the survey said, it would be nice to hear you instead of doing um, a guest to do maybe an episode about a console, maybe a, a Mega Drive special or something. Again, the After Hours podcast, you know, we often do like system deep dives, don't we, where we yeah. do an hour and a half, two hours about the, we're doing the Super Nintendo, I think next. So loads of memories and our top five games on the system. So um, I think you'll enjoy that show if that's your kind of vibe. And uh, there were a couple of people who have seen survey respondents saying, uh, you know, it, it would be nice to have the show without adverts. Again, back is on Patreon, cost for a cup of coffee once a month. You get it without the ads and you get it a bit early as well. And of course, you get to mention a big thank you in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And let's give a big shout to our latest backers. Hello, 
to Englishman Dan. Raoul. Charlotte Woolley. Richard Yates. And Adrian Nelson. Who all backed us on Patreon. We massively appreciate your support, guys. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find it all on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, we love to give support to retro gaming community projects and people that are keeping the retro scene alive. And each week at the moment, we are bigging up retro gaming shops all around the world. So we want to know, where do you buy your retro games and systems from? Have you got a shop, maybe in your town or your city, that you go to that, you know, are run by an independent shop that are run by passionate people? And we want to give them some free publicity on the show and give them a shout out. So every week we do our retro gaming shop of the week. And this week... We're going to Canada. Yeah, so uh, we received a tweet from Stu Leck, 52. And uh, Stu, I love his description, tall Glaswegian person living in Calgary. <laughs> and he says, um, my local retro game store here in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, it's called Video Game Trader. And uh, the folks that work there greet you by name. Uh, they know their stuff and they also reserve stuff for you. Um, so right. as soon as they get it in, uh, they're absolutely fantastic. And this place is apparently been running for 25 years, which is pretty awesome. It's the biggest um, game video game retailer in Calgary, and it specializes in rare, retro, new and used games from all of the different generations. Well, that explains it because I've just been on their website and they do sell their uh, their you know, their games and stuff on the website. And the 25 years does explain it because of on the retro page, they have 350 pages, not 350 listings, 350 pages of listed retro games. And each page has about 50 games on there, which just kind of shows how big this (laughs) shop is, which is awesome, you know, to see that they're kind of like, you know, that's not to say that they're killing it or anything like that, but to see that they're thriving, they've got that amount of stock, and it's not like it is here in the UK sometimes where, you know, you go into a shop and they've got a master system, you know. <laughs> it, it looks amazing as well. Like the the thing, as soon as I saw an image of this place, I thought Blockbuster. And yeah. The logo is very Blockbuster, isn't it? And the shop decal. Yeah. And the kind of blue that you get on it. And, and even the layout of the games, how they're like kind of laid out like videos were back in the days. Uh, really, really amazing. But for 25 years to be kind of doing retro games and doing that service. Before it was retro. Before yeah, it was man. retro. And, like, just looking here at some of the pictures, Joe would go mad here. Look at the amount of copies of um, Nintendo NES titles know, that you've got. Know. You know, Look, like, four copies of Super Mario free box. My wife would kill me if I went into the shop. <laughs> you, know, you know, to me, there's um, an image Ravi pulled off their website that he shared with us, and obviously you can check out their website and the Facebook and see all this. But the, the window display the amount of box systems they've got when you when you walk up to that. I mean, imagine seeing that just on the street lit up at night. I, I'd, I think I'd float across the road and get stuck to the window. Yeah, I think that's actually, um, that's actually like their display that they used to go to shows. So they also go out to trade shows and they kind of sell all of the stuff when shows are going on and they've, they've got a stand. They look like they're really established and, uh, you know, a, a fantastic resource. And I was thinking Dominic Diamond's actually from Calgary, isn't it? So... He needs yeah, I think to he lives there, pay, pay a little visit to this place and, uh, you know, do some Games Master reviews <laughs> live there. That would be an awesome hookup. 
Yeah, so uh, Video Game Trader, our retro gaming store of the week. You can check out their website at videogametrader.ca. And if you've got a place that you go, let us know about it on our socials. You can tweet us at RetroHourUK or drop us an email, show at theretrohour.com. And let's keep these independent video game retailers going. We'd love to give them a shout out on the show. Right then, next, we are going to be celebrating, I can't believe it's actually 25 years since this documentary came out, back in 1996, Triumph of the Nerds, with our special guest, Robert Cringely, is next on the Retro. Our podcast. You're listening to the Retro Owl podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, we're so excited to talk to our guest this week. He's a journalist, an author, a documentary maker as well. You know him from classic documentaries like Triumph of the Nerds, Nerd 2.01, and of course, the Lost Steve Jobs interview that we need to talk about as well. Welcome to the Retro Owl podcast. Robert Cringely. Hello, Bob. Hello. Pleased to meet you. Yeah, great to have you joining us. Now, uh, before we get into all that, we're actually recording from the UK. I was reading that you studied here in Britain as a teenager. I did. I went to, uh, I guess, the equivalent of high school in Liverpool. You know, there was an old boy who had uh, gone to America and done well, and he gave a scholarship for one boy to go to his old school. And uh, so I won it, and that's what I did. So did your interest in journalism kind of start when you were in Europe? Well, no. I mean, I started as a journalist at age 14 writing obituaries for my local newspaper in America because it was uh, I had been delivering the paper and uh, I had to get up early in the morning. And I suddenly realized that if I actually wrote for the paper, I didn't have to get up early in the morning. And (laughs) so they gave me a job and the first job for Almost any reporter in those days was writing obituaries. And I remember my first obituary I wrote, I forgot to mention that the person had died. And uh, wow. that apparently is, is, is a problem. And the widow called up and yelled at me. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you've had a very varied career. I know after that, I mean, you moved on. And you were actually um, an early employee of Apple. Yeah. Um, like I read employee, employee number 11 or 12 or something. How, how did that happen then? How did, you end up, how did you end up there? And what was your role at Apple then in those early days? You know, I, I came to Apple because I was, uh, had been a member of the Homebrew Computer Club. And that's where I met uh, the two Steves. And, um, you know, at some point, uh, Steve Jobs, they needed some help on a variety of things. And, and he asked if I uh, would want to come work with them. And I remember the funny thing was at the time he said, you have to understand he was, I think, 21. And he mm-hmm. had um, hair all the way down his back. And I think he only ate fruit. And uh, so he said, we don't have much loot. So we'd like to pay you in shares. And uh, I held out for the cash. So, you know, <laughs> that was my chance to get rich, uh, lost. And uh, so I went to work for Apple, and I worked in hardware engineering for a bit, and I helped Jeff Raskin write the manual for the Apple II. And then I was fired, because not because of anything I did wrong, but just because they ran out of work for me. And then I was hired back at Apple. That was in 1977 I started at Apple and mm. left in 78. And I came back in 80 and was hired to be part of the Lisa Group, and uh, working with Larry Tesler on the graphical user interface, and then uh, was fired with 40% of the Lisa group uh, in 81 by Steve Mm -hmm. again. 
and then uh, came back in 84 and worked on a secret project for Apple and uh, was fired in 85 again by Steve a week before he was fired. So if I just right. went on holiday, I'd probably still be there. What kept attracting you back to Apple, though? Uh, Steve kept asking me to work for Apple. So, uh, you know, you have to understand, I've been fired from almost every job I've ever had in my life. I think I've only voluntarily left once. And yet there are these multiple employers who've, who've employed me several times. So I guess I must offer some, uh, you know, service or, or, or some usefulness. But apparently I'm such a pain in the ass that eventually they, it's not worth it. So they get rid of me. So you mentioned the uh, Homebrew Computer Club there as well. Was it as legendary as they kind of say? And were there just so many companies and pioneers coming out of it? Well, the Homebrew Club was really odd because uh, it was composed almost entirely of doctors and teenage boys. And the doctors had money and the teenage boys were smart. And so um, it was a peculiar very egalitarian because it turned out the teenage boys had the knowledge. So you would go in to these meetings and the kids would be teaching the adults. And that was a, a role reversal from most of society in 1977. But everyone was very excited about this new technology and there, there was no internet. There were most of the, of the knowledge had to pass from person to person. So groups like this, uh, the homebrew Computer Club was actually the second personal computer club. The first one was somewhere in New Jersey. There was one, and then the Homebrew Club, and which ran for over a decade. And it was it was very exciting. And yes, there were there were companies that came out of it. Very often, those companies would show their technology in very early state to the meetings. And I remember, uh, in fact, when I first met uh, uh, Waz and Jobs they were showing the Apple one and uh, they had, you know, arrived at the meeting in Waz's Fiat and it was very joyful. And, and they showed this thing and it was, it sort of blew people away because it was uh, such a clever design and it was so cheap by the standards of the era. Yes. We've had um, Lee Felsenstein on the show before and he was talking about the fact that there just seemed to be a real kind of energy buzz around yeah. the Homebrew Computer Club. Yeah, did it feel like you were at the start of something that was going to be huge? Well, you know, Lee was the, was the leader. And yeah. uh, he's the guy who, who sat up there with the big stick and ran the meetings. And so, yeah, he, he, and, and what a great engineer in his own right. You know, the, the computers that Lee designed are legendary. And uh, so that, uh, so yeah, there was a very high standard of uh, knowledge and content and uh, and yet at the same time, it was very open and and uh, embracing, which is unusual sometimes for technology. You know, a lot of times, a lot of really sharp tech guys, at least in those days, were sort of assholes. And it was it was like a no asshole zone. So that was uh, that was unusual in that respect. Well, I know that home computers, microcomputers weren't very affordable in those days. I mean, what was your first home system then? And did you have to outlay a lot of cash for it? Well, it was an Apple One, and Waz made my case. Oh, so it didn't, you know, it was $500, I think it was. It had 4K of RAM. But this, the, the price standard for a computer at that time was generally in the two to $4,000 range for something that wasn't a kit. So it was a very expensive item. It cost as much as a car. 
And if you'd hung on to that Apple One, it would be worth a lot more today, I imagine. Yeah, it would be worth uh, my Apple One, especially because Waz built my case. So, um, yeah. So, at, you know, it wasn't much of a computer. It wasn't very useful. And the fact that there are as many of them around as there are is probably uh, can be chalked up to the fact that we knew at the time that it was a sort of historical artifact and was kept around for that purpose. Because I've seen them, they have a couple at the Computer History Museum and they fire them up every now and again. They still run, but there's nothing you can do with them. Well, you've kind of been known as the man who can get the real inside story since the 80s. And um, I was wondering when you first decided you wanted to start covering the computer industry. Well, I started covering the computer industry when it stopped hiring me. So <laughs> uh, my last uh, my last job in the computer industry was at Adobe Systems. There I was employee number 29, and I was the original product manager for PostScript. So uh, and, and the original uh, product manager for uh, Adobe Illustrator, which was their first consumer application. Well, obviously, after that, I mean, from, from 1987 to 1995, I mean, you wrote the infamous notes from the field gossip column in InfoWorld magazine. I mean, yeah. any kind of strong memories that stand out from your time at InfoWorld? You know, I'll tell you, it, if, we, if we continue the Apple theme, there was an interesting thing that happened once. There was, a, there was a guy, it was a man, who called up from Apple one day, and he, was, for some reason, wanted to tell me a lot of things. And he told me a lot about product plans, and then he sent me a spreadsheet that had Apple's product uh, roadmap for the next three years on it. And so uh, this was a time when Apple was considered to be sort of a very leaky company. But the peculiar thing was that we had, and, and, it, and it worked out, it was correct. We had three years of Apple's product plans, and we, we could have written you know, a three-year story. Uh, but instead, we decided to kind of wait it out and anticipate what was coming next. And then and, and and then get a bunch of we got like a dozen scoops out of that, and, and and we knew way in advance what was coming, but we had to do it in such a way that we didn't bust this guy, and that was probably the most exciting experience for me as a journalist because we had all this information and we were playing this this cat and mouse game, so that sort of thing happened. But otherwise, uh, you know, it was a young industry being run still by the founders of the companies which meant that it was very unprofessional and uh, certainly matched my temperament completely. Well, that column must have uh, given you a lot of sway back then. Um, did you have kind of a lot of power in the industry then? Well, no, I don't think so. What I, uh, how, would, how would a journalist have power and how would they use it? Like were people worried about what you'd write? Yeah, they were worried about what I would write. And, and I remember... I was single and I was dating a woman who was in the industry. Her employer found out that she was dating me and she almost lost her job just on principle. Wow. And it certainly hobbled her career a bit, but she then changed jobs and didn't tell anyone she ever knew me again. So, <laughs> so I guess it, it sort of hurt my love life a bit, but you know, I don't know, you know, given that there was a time when people would call you up on the phone and give you three years of data, there were lots of ways to cover these stories, and there was lots of there were lots of things happening. It was an interesting time, and there were 
characters. Oh, such characters. They were people. They weren't companies. I've got to ask, Bob, what's kind of the background with the name Robert Cringely? Because I know others have also laid claim to using that as a pen name before. Well, I don't usually like to talk about this, but um, I was, uh, I'm the third Robert Cringely. Uh, Mm. The first Robert Cringely was uh, Rory O'Connor, and the second Robert Cringely was Laurie Flynn, a woman. And And they did it for 18 months each. Or maybe it was nine months each. I don't know. They did it for some short period of time. And I've been doing it since 1987. So, you know, I think I've got some staying power here. Um, yeah, I think you definitely own it now. Yeah. Well, I literally own it now. I mean, I, I, I won it in U.S. federal court. So uh, my employer at the time, which was InfoWorld or their parent company, you know, of course, fired me. And then... Uh, tried to make me stop doing what I was doing, but I had a contract that allowed me to do it, and they contested that, and it was a very ugly time for a while until I won, in which case they, you know, made nice again. And, and so, you know, my relationship with them is fine to this day, but it's clear that it's my name. It's not their name anymore. Well, you wrote the book, Accidental Empires. Where did the idea uh-huh. come from, and how did you approach it? Uh, well, there was a lack of, I mean, there had been a book, the fire in the Valley, uh, that had come out, which was about the early history of the semiconductor industry leading into the personal computer, but it stopped at a certain point and there was a lot of stuff still happening. And I had a unique uh, perspective and a sort of tongue in cheek reputation. So I could get away with writing things that other people might not have. So, um, you know, the funny thing is I, I wouldn't have written that book except that uh, I had a relative who was dying of cancer and I had the support. And so I didn't make enough money. So I had to make some more money. And the only thing I knew to do at that time was to then write a book. So I sold a book so I could pay for my relative to live a while longer. And that's why, if you ever read that book, if you look at the uh, at the the dedication, it's it says it's for Pammy, who knows we need the money, and uh, mm-hmm. and that was who I was referring to. Well, in that book, I mean, it was very insightful, and I know one story in particular that often comes out from that book is the uh, the famous anecdote about Bill Gates and a tub of ice cream. Um, what, what what was the story there? And I believe Bill actually answered that, did he? Well, Bill denies it. Bill denied it and denies it to this day. But it's absolutely true, which says something about Bill. You know, he's perfectly willing to lie about this. It was uh, the guy who was behind him in the queue at the store. Who the, the, the story is that Bill was in this con- at this convenience store and he was buying a tub of ice cream and he wanted to use a coupon to get it at a lower price and he was digging around looking for the coupon and he couldn't find it. And finally the guy behind him paid the money, the extra money to get bill out of the way. And the, um, the guy who did that uh, was an engineer at Boeing and had worked with my coworker at, uh, at InfoWorld. Our Seattle bureau chief uh, was a guy named Jeff Angus and Jeff 
had worked at Boeing with this guy the day after the, uh, the it happened in the queue. Jeff had bumped into the guy, and the guy said, "You'll never believe what happened. I was in this uh, store, and I was buying Bill Gates, and blah blah blah." I told the story, and so I heard it the day after it happened, and that was like years before uh, I wrote it in the book. So I had Jeff bumping into his old friend. I had the name of the old friend. I called the old friend. He confirmed the story. This guy has no reason in the world to lie about it. So, uh, you know, the story is absolutely true. And Bill Gates is just lying when he says that it's not true. Oh, oh, one, 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 one more thing. One more thing. There's a funny thing. There was a, there was a biography of Bill Gates called Gates and uh, written by two reporters up in Seattle. They were at a party and the subject of Accidental Empires came up. And they were at the party with Jeff Angus. And uh, the, the story of Accidental Empires came up and they said, oh, that book. We hate that book. And, they, and Jeff said, why do you hate that book? And he says, well, it's full of lies, like that story about Bill Gates and the coupon. And Jeff said, I was the source of that story. <laughs> and they said, so it's true? Yes. So it's true. And she, he said, yeah, of course it's true. And their response was because they had also interviewed Jeff for their book. And they said, why didn't you tell us that story? And his reply was, well, you weren't asking those sort of questions. Well, in 1995, you did the uh, classic documentary, Triumph of the Nerds. And I absolutely love that. It's great. It's still one of the best kind of documentaries to watch on those uh, early days and when it was just just emerging and just the roots of everybody. Um, how did you get into it? And um, what did you want to show with that documentary? Well, I had um, written the book, and I had no particular plans beyond that, but um, a TV producer in the UK named John Gao read the book and thought that it would make uh, a good documentary, and he was able to then sell the idea to Channel 4 in the UK, and they commissioned the documentary, and so John contacted me. And a, a deal ensued, a, a co-production with the uh, U.S. PBS network came about. And uh, we ended up making the film. And I hosted it primarily because I would work cheaper than anyone else. You know, I think we were budget constrained and I was low-hanging fruit. So I got a career out of it. And I think watching it as well, you could see your passion for it. I mean, you had that, you know, great tongue-in-cheek style and I love the way you delivered it and all the legends that you spoke to as well. I mean, was it hard kind of tracking everyone down? I mean, I guess you already knew all these people anyway from having worked in the industry already. Was it easy to get them on board and get those interviews done? Yeah, that was maybe another reason for hiring me in that I was an, you know, a known adversary. I, I could get these people on the phone and I proved that I could get them in the room. And, you know, given that it was a, it was a historical piece, looking back, a lot of folks who might not have wanted to talk to me normally had no problem looking back. And, and, and that's in part what allowed the show to live as long as it has, because, you know, if I was looking forward, I'd inevitably be wrong or I'd be run over by history. But looking back, if you do the job right, uh, you know, history shouldn't change. So uh, we were able to do that. And we got a lot of folks, in fact, some very unusual people. Uh, we had uh, Paul Allen and Paul Allen. There are hardly any Paul Allen interviews anywhere. 
I, I was going to say, actually, yeah, because um, Paul Allen was like a, a key to Microsoft and um, just seeing him at the start, uh, it, it was just like, wow, this is a really unique documentary. Yeah, it was. We we were very lucky to get him, and uh, he was very shy. But, you know, once once we got him on camera, it was fine. And that's usually the way it works. Uh, once they start talking about old stories, you know, they and, – and you save the hard questions for last. So uh, that gets them committed to the process. And then once you know you've got enough stuff from them that you're going to use it anyway, then you can afford to take risks and ask questions that are perhaps leading or, or controversial. Yeah, then at the walk-off, you've already got the rest recorded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you've got to get them to sign the release, though. That's the thing. And in fact, we had an interesting story about that. For some reason, that wasn't my job. You know, I wasn't the producer. And so therefore, I didn't have to get these people to sign that piece of paper. But uh, we had a variety of producers, some of whom were better than others. And one instance where they forgot to get the person to sign on the spot was Bill Gates. And so after the fact, they sent the release to Microsoft and they went to the Microsoft legal department and the legal department said, no, we're not going to sign this. And so, you know, then Bill wasn't going to be in the show. And they, and so I pressed. And so finally they, uh, they sent back the release, but they had rewritten it. And the way Microsoft had written the Microsoft legal department, this is this is an American corporate legal department. This is the way they function. They had rewritten the license that we could use the footage that we shot for this production, but only if Microsoft then owned the production. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was peculiar because they weren't trying to take money away from us, but they were trying to control the, the intellectual property for all time. And not just Bill, but the whole darn thing. And which was ludicrous. And so the uh, the producers called me up in a panic and I called Bill and said, you know, we're not going to use you because your people are jerks. And unless you make them change, you know, you're, you're going to be written out of history. And he said, fax it up to me, I'll sign it and fax it back. And that's what happened. I've got to ask Bob, you know, coming from like a UK audience back in uh, the mid 90s, I was a big fan of the the Amiga, and I remember thinking, oh, they're going to mention the Amiga or, or the Commodore 64 at some point soon. Didn't get a mention at all in Triumph of the Nerves. I mean, no. Was that deliberate, or was that just a lack of time? Or You know, it's a funny thing. I didn't have – I knew Chuck Peddle, who was the guy who uh, did the 6502 that was the processor that was in the Apple II and also in the Commodore 64. And so Chuck had worked – had done the Commodore PET, and – but that was my only connection to Commodore at the time. And, you know, it, it's a funny thing. You're right. It just sort of fell through the cracks there. And it was a huge story. The Commodore 64 was enormous. And the fight between Jack Trammell and Irving Gould was a great story. And the fact that Jack was an Auschwitz survivor and, you know, it I obviously could have gotten a, a great chapter out of that. I don't know why I didn't, uh, except I just didn't have any connection at the time. Now, ironically... Uh, one of my best friends now uh, was the chief uh, scientist at both Commodore and Atari. And so, uh, but I didn't know him then. And, uh, and that, I guess that was a choice. I was, I was, you couldn't deny the IBM PC 
And I was already telling the CPM story and the Apple story. And, you know, it was, it was a hundred thousand word book contract and it went to 109,000 words. So I guess I, you know, there's a, the lady who calls up the, calls up the publisher and says, how long is a novel? And they say, well, what do you mean? And they say, just, I just want to know how long is a novel? And I said, well, our typical novel is about 80,000 words. And the lady says, oh, thank God I'm finished. And <laughs> so, you know, it's that sort of thing. I, I was aiming for 100,000 words. I, I ran over it by 9,000 and I said, I guess I'll stop here. Oh, it must have been an exciting time in the industry. You were like covering Windows 95, the launch. You, uh, when we were uh, doing Triumph of the Nerds, yeah, we shot at the launch uh, that day in, uh, in Redmond. And it was, it was exciting. You know, we saw Jay Leno. And the funny thing was that uh, Windows was already dominant. The idea behind the Windows 95 was that it somehow was going to be bugless and automatic and would do all these wonderful things, which it kind of sort of did. I mean, it was a pretty good release, but it wasn't, it wasn't what they had led us to believe it would be. But it was fun to be there, and they, they were certainly making an event out of it. And, and it, was, it was cool that we got to cover that. It's been looking back on that. I mean, it, you know, when you watch part three, it's in, isn't it, when you were at the launch? If you, if you watch that now, it, like, it looks like a, like a rock concert or something. You know, I guess it would never been a launch like that in the software industry until that point. Um, you know, it was done outdoors, and the actual presentations were done in a tent. And that was unusual. Apple had, in, had really developed event marketing, but it was always on a stage in an auditorium or a theater. And I think that this was Microsoft attempting to outdo Apple. And part of it was this change of venue. And the rest of it was making it just numerically and physically bigger because, you know, it was outdoors. Well, you interviewed some of the biggest pioneers in the industry. And of course, out of it came the, um, the lost Steve Jobs interview as well. That was, I think, only around 10 minutes of it were actually used in Triumph of the Nerds, and obviously it was like 70 minutes long, the, the full interview they got with Steve. How did that get lost and found again? There is an interesting story here uh, that is still a mystery. We did, all, we did more than 100 interviews for Triumph of the Nerds, and all of the interview tapes, went, the uh, Triumph of the Nerds was edited in London. And uh, so all of the tapes were there. The Nerds 2.01, the follow-up of the brief history of the internet, was edited in Portland, Oregon. And so all of the tapes were sent from London to Portland and supposedly never arrived. But the people in Portland were so incompetent that, you know, it could be that they they arrived and they lost them or that, you know, I don't know what happened, but I'm very dubious of this story. The fact that we had the Jobs tape was just uh, fortuitous. It was just a miracle. And that is that the, uh, when the interviews were made, they would dub a VHS copy of every interview for the director to look at before going into the edit. And so the director is a guy named Paul Sen, who is still in the UK media. He, he runs Furnace Television in Glasgow. And so Paul had all 100 interviews on VHS but he only kept one, and that was the Jobs interview. And he just threw the rest away. And so when Steve died, 
Paul remembered that he kept that tape. So it was in his uh, garage in London at the time, and it had been in the cold garage for 17 years. And VHS tapes that are not rewound for 17 years suffer, especially from heat and cold. And mm. so he, he dug it out and found it and played it, and it was playable, but it had horrific uh, technical issues, dropouts, weird cross-printing things. It was a mess. And so he, he had called me up and said, uh, I've got this tape. You know, you, and, and you might want to you know, put it on your blog or put it on YouTube or something. And I remembered the interview that we did with Steve, and a very unusual thing happened. First of all, it was – if you've seen the film, you know, it was – it went very well. And it was, uh, mm. it was a pretty good interview, and Steve was on that day and very cooperative. And so it, we got this exceptional interview, and we realized it at the time. And when we were done, when we finished the last shot and were breaking down the set, uh, the, the sound man – a guy named Gene Kuhn said, and you know, these guys had been at a hundred interviews. They were everywhere with me. And Gene said at the end of it, he said, you know, I think we just recorded history. And that was the only interview we had like that, where, you know, it was clearly that we had, we had just found gold. And that's why Paul kept the interview. So, so we had this tape and he wanted me to give it to my readers or my viewers or just offer it to the world. And I thought, you know, I'm greedy. I thought, well, we could make some money from this. And so I had to think of what to do. So I, I called up Mark Cuban. Uh, Mark Cuban has a movie studio and he has a, a, a cable channel and he, has, and he has a production company and he has all these things. And I said, oh, and he had a, a chain of theaters, movie theaters. So um, he said, well, you know, if it's playable, let's put it in the theater. And so that's what we did. We, we ran it for just a couple of weeks in all of his landmark theaters across America and then took it to uh, home video and ultimately it ended up streaming on Netflix for six years. But the funny thing about it was making it usable was a real technical challenge. We took the, uh, the VHS tape and took it to what was at the time the best post-production house in London and asked them to fix it. And they couldn't. They just didn't have any technology that could fix the horrible artifacts that were showing up. The sound was okay, but the, uh, the, the video had horrible problems. And so I had a friend in a, back in America who uh, ran a company called Motion DSP. And Motion DSP was a tech startup funded by the CIA and their main business at the time was real-time video processing of predator drone footage being sent by satellite from Pakistan to Las Vegas, where the drone pilots actually sit. And, wow. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I said, can you restore my movie by running it through your drone system? And the guy, his name is Sean, uh, said, well, we can try. So, so, so they tried and then I went in to get the, you know, get the news and this was like a month later and they said, well, it didn't actually work because their system was intended to, uh, improve the video from 
airplanes flying in the sky. It's looking at the ground and, it, you know, it, it's the earth. It's not Steve Jobs' forehead. That, that was the problem. And I said, oh, well, thanks for trying. And they said, no, 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 we fixed it. And they had, they had gone back and written a new application from scratch to restore the movie. And wow. they, yeah, it's amazing. And, they, and, and so what you see is what they did, taking, you know, starting with a really poor VHS tape and then ultimately producing an HD uh, master from it. And uh, and they they made it work. And the 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 guy uh, who did it, Nikola Bosinovic, was a genius. And he just made it work. And uh, and so that's how that's how we were able to release it. Otherwise, it wasn't it wasn't viewable. Well, there's a lot of films out there at the moment, and uh, a lot of portrayals of kind of computer history, especially with Apple and uh, Steve Jobs. Yeah. Um, which, which ones do you think have kind of done the best job and uh, represented Steve? Um, in a way that you enjoyed? Well, you know, I had a, I had a huge problem with the, the Walter Isaacson book, which I, I don't think did a very good job of presenting Steve. I think it was this, I think it presented Steve as Steve wanted to be presented. That's why he chose Walter and that's why he controlled Walter and who Walter could talk to. But the movie that came from it was, you know, a work of fiction. It wasn't very accurate, wasn't very useful. Uh, beyond that, the Ashton Kutcher uh, had the look. He looked like Steve, but it wasn't particularly accurate either. So, no, I, I just don't think that there have been very good. There hasn't been a proper theatrical treatment of this. And uh, Did you like Pirates of Silicon Valley? Um, Pirates of Silicon Valley was originally going to be called Triumph of the Geeks. And we made them change their title. That was a really interesting film because it was based on the book of Fire in the Valley, which pretty much ended the story of that book at the moment where the movie begins. So they bought the rights and they could claim something there. But they, the actual work that they did was pretty much their own reporting. And I'm not saying it was wrong. Uh, and it was fine. you know. But it also... Uh, was also a very early story and was trying to do a lot. And I think that uh, there are more intimate stories that are worth telling at greater length. You know, if you look at, if you look at, at uh, the Paul Allen uh, autobiography that came out, where he tells the story of having non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and dying and hearing Gates and Ballmer in the other room plotting to get his stock from him. And I had heard that story from, I knew a woman who had been Paul Allen's girlfriend. Paul Allen always has a spectacular girlfriend. And one of those girlfriends had told me the story. So I had that story and, but no, no place to use it. But, you know, it's at that kind of level of detail. If someone could haul all that stuff together, I think it'd be an amazing story. Yeah, absolutely. All these stories that haven't really been told to the general well, public. Well, except he wrote a book about it, but you know, it, yeah. it, it wasn't a bestseller. It wasn't picked up, and I think that story, which was which really drove him, you know, that's why he didn't go back to Microsoft after his uh, his cancer went into remission, and he had a bone marrow transplant, and he was cured, and eventually it came back, but it wasn't for twenty years. 
So he could have gone back to Microsoft, but he didn't because he didn't trust the leadership. We're getting back to your Steve Jobs interview. I thought that was really interesting because, I mean, that was a unique moment, I thought, because you had Steve, who at the time, he, he was observing Apple as an outsider at that stage, wasn't he? Do you think that kind of made that interview quite unique compared to other ones that we've seen? Well, I think a bunch of things made it unique. Uh, but yeah, it was 90, 1995. It was Next was in decline, but still running. Uh, we shot it at Next headquarters. And he hadn't gone back to Apple, and he couldn't even imagine going back to Apple. So we, so he was ruthlessly honest at the time about both companies. You know, he, 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 he didn't particularly want to talk about Next because he was already dismissing the effort. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it was an interesting time. We were very lucky to catch him as we did. But when he came back to Apple, when, you know, he got a, a board seat out of it and he saw Gil Emilio, I knew, and I believe I wrote at the time, that there was no way that Steve was going to allow Gil to run things because Gil, while a perfectly reasonable manager, was hardly a visionary. And he was flailing so, and the company was flailing so, that Steve just, you know, stepped up and, and took it over. And that didn't surprise me in the least. Yeah, just from watching that as well, I did kind of notice, I don't know if you kind of got the same vibe as well, that Steve at that time in 95, he seemed quite bitter about Microsoft's success as well. I mean, you know, imagine Windows 95, the big launch was happening around then. Did you kind of get that vibe off him that he was oh, yeah, a bit bitter yeah. of Bill Gates' success? Uh, you know, that I'll tell you a funny story. I, I was in 98, I pitched an article to Vanity Fair magazine. I was going to do a story about the relationship between Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. And part of it was going to be how they viewed each other. And uh, Graydon Carter, who was the editor of Vanity Fair, thought, that's great. Let's do it. And so I contacted Steve and said, doing this story for Vanity Fair, I'm going to talk, you know, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to Bill and, you know, I'll talk to a few other people and we'll, we'll get a great story out of it. Let's do it. And at the time, 98, you know, Apple needed publicity. This was a good thing. And Steve said, Steve immediately called Graydon Carter up on the phone to make sure it was correct and to try to somehow get control of it. And Graydon stood up to him, which was good. And so, uh, so Steve got back to me and he said, I'll do it, but you have to get Bill first. And so I had to then take the project to Bill and get him, you know, get him to sit down for an hour with me and to talk about Steve Jobs. The thing about getting an interview with Bill Gates is that it is, it can be difficult, but it always happens. You know, it's just procedures and dates and date books and schedules. And, you know, eventually if you, if you put in the legwork, it'll happen. So it took me about eight weeks to get an interview with Bill. And so I went up to Seattle and I did the interview with Bill and it was fun. It was great. He was thrilled to be talking about Steve. And so we just talked about Steve and then I finished and I went home and I sent a message to Steve and said, okay, I've got Bill. Now, when can we schedule your interview? And Steve said, I don't think so. So Steve killed the, wow. Steve killed the project by refusing the interview, but he, but he, made me jump through hoops. He wasted weeks of my time. He wasted an hour of Bill's time. 
And this is the kind of sick guy he could be where he did it just to be an asshole. And Bill, in the interview, I was recording the interview, and in the interview with Bill, he made me promise, or actually Pam Edstrom, the PR lady from Microsoft, made me promise not to use the interview for anything else. And so, and they had it on tape and they had their tape and I had my tape and I wasn't, you know, I was, I was paralyzed. I couldn't do anything with it. And so I never did do anything with it. I still had the audio tape. And so, uh, you know, that's the way these things worked. So at that point, Steve was back at Apple. Microsoft had made the $150 million investment that saved Apple. And Steve was still doing things to spite Bill. So you're saying, was he bitter? Yes, he was bitter. And, and he explains it in the interview where he, he said, you know, he, did, he didn't regret. It wasn't their success. It was that their technology was so crappy. And, you know, and that's in the movie. And, and he was right. You know, it was crappy. When that bailout kind of happened, um, yeah. what was the reaction overall from people other than um, Steve Jobs? Well, in the business press and in the general world, the reaction was surprise. But anyone who actually knew the people involved and the issues involved wouldn't see that at all because, frankly, Microsoft had a very successful Apple II and Macintosh software business that was making them money. And so Bill viewed it as two things. One, he, he got to hang with Steve some more because he really liked that. He liked to watch Steve. And um, the other thing was, of course, it, it perpetuated that business, which had been, you know, the relationship between Apple and Microsoft was, was a really interesting one where Woz did the original uh, integer basic for the Apple II. But when they wanted to have a floating point basic, they, he, wasn't, he wasn't up to doing that. And so they had a turn to Microsoft, which was known as basic interpreter supplier at the time. And they got the basic from Microsoft for the, for the Apple II. And when they did that, and I've got this story from both sides, Microsoft understood that it had Apple at a disadvantage. Apple really needed that basic, and they were able to cut a very lucrative deal with Apple. So lucrative, in fact, that Apple, literally, they used the money that they got from Apple for that basic interpreter. They used it to fund Microsoft's entire expansion outside the United States. They were strictly a domestic company until they got millions and millions from Apple and used that to expand to Europe and Africa and the Middle East. So it, it, it changed Microsoft for the better and made them a much bigger company. And they were very gleeful about it. They were gloating about how they had sort of taken advantage of, of Apple. And, and they later extended that because they used the contract for the basic was coming up when the Macintosh was coming out and, and they, they used it to get Apple to give them the original license to use the graphical user interface was based on Microsoft's willingness to walk away from the basic deal. And so it was the, it was an Apple II issue that they, they leveraged in order to get 
allow Windows 1 to not be in violation of the Apple um, intellectual property. Yeah, it sounded like a lot of kind of infighting and everything at that time in the industry. And I mean, you know, one example of that and someone else who you interviewed in Triumph was um, John Scully, who was, you know, essentially the guy who kicked jobs out of Apple. What was his kind of attitude like? And did he have any regrets from doing that when you spoke to him? Yeah, well, at that point, yes, he did. Because, uh, you know, at this, well, wait a minute. Yeah, 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 he did. Because Scully was out of Apple at that time. We interviewed him in New York at Scully Brothers Investments on Park Avenue. And uh, the thing with Scully was that Steve chose John Scully. There were a time when Mike Markula, who was the chairman of Apple and had been their biggest investor, would not allow Steve to be the CEO. He also wouldn't allow Steve to run the Lisa division. So if Steve couldn't be the CEO, he wanted to choose the CEO. And so exactly like he chose his biography author in Walter Isaacson, he chose someone who had no background in computers, the computer industry, so that Steve could control what he knew, what what uh, Walter knew and what John Scully knew. So Steve uh, seduced John Scully, who had been working at Pepsi, PepsiCo, in New York. And he, he got he offered him a lot of money and got him to move to California and and so he came in as CEO of Apple, knowing nothing about the computer industry, knowing nothing about technology, knowing only about making soft drinks and putting them in bottles and cans. And so uh, which is the way Steve wanted it because then Steve thought that Scully would do everything through Steve and Steve could control could effectively be the CEO of Apple by controlling Scully. Now, what Steve failed to realize is that PepsiCo in New York was a highly politicized organization where corporate infighting was an art, and Apple was a young company that didn't have that art. And so when ultimately Steve and John came in conflict, John knew how to play that game way better than Steve did and was able to turn the board against Steve. And that is how Steve came to be on the outs. You know, he wasn't fired, but he was placed in an office that was the only office in an entire empty building. And he had no duties. And a week later, he tendered his resignation and sold all 6.9 million Apple shares on the same day, which is not a smart way to get rid of shares. And so uh, that's what happened. And then, but then... Scully had won, but then Scully had to deliver. And Scully only knew what Steve had taught him. So this is a problem. And the way that, and Scully looked brilliant for the first year. And he looked brilliant for one important reason. And that was that he immediately canceled all of Steve's pet projects. And Steve's pet projects were costing Apple about $200 million a year. And that $200 million a year immediately dropped to the bottom line as profit. So it made Scully look brilliant for increasing the company's profit by a substantial amount. $200 million in profit was a lot for a billion-dollar company in that era. And so, so Scully looked brilliant, but it was based on what he cut, not what he initiated. 
And so they came out with derivative Apple II products and derivative Macintosh products. And, you know, things got kind of dreary. And then uh, they did the Newton. And that was my friend Larry Tesler's uh, baby. And it was just too early for that technology. It wasn't powerful enough. It wasn't, you know, the market wasn't ready. And so it failed. And at that point, then Scully's run out of ideas. He has, he has at this point, named himself chief technology officer as well as CEO. So he's claiming that he's the big brain when he clearly isn't the big brain. And in, in private, he's going around trying to sell the company and no one will buy it. And so the board that had backed him finally turned on him. Uh, they offered the job to Spindler. It was between Spindler and Gasset. You know, Jean-Louis Gasset, uh, who would run Apple France, and then was brought in to be the technical guy at, at in Cupertino. Uh, Jean-Louis, uh, who has an ego the size of, oh, I'd say Montana, is uh, thought that it was perfectly logical that he would take over the company, certainly not Spindler, the German. And uh, so it was France against Germany. And Germany won. Uh, but Spindler, you know, while being a very forceful executive, didn't particularly know any better than anyone else what to do. So he failed, and 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 Gasset went off and did B. Remember the the B computer and yes, the, BOS. And the BOS. And ironically, when Gil Emilio, who you know came in after Spindler, was trying to come up with a new operating system for the uh, the Macintosh, the two candidates were Next Step from Next and the BOS from B. And many people thought, uh, many of my friends thought that the BOS was superior to Next Step. But, um, you know, Steve was very persuasive and he got his deal and his $400 million and, and the rest is history. But even in that case, Steve immediately took his Apple shares and sold every single one of them and said at the time, he's on the Apple board. And he said this, he sold all his shares because he didn't have faith in the company's management, which is just was Gil Emilio. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just want to ask about another pioneer that you um, interviewed in Trying for the Nerds. And that was Ed Roberts, who, of course, was the, uh, the founder of Altair, one of the earliest microcomputers. What memories have you got of Ed? Well, Ed was uh, Ed ran uh, MITS, and I don't even know what MITS stands for, but they made the Altair. So the name of the company was different from the name of the computer. And, yeah. uh, and you know, he, he had been in the Air Force. He was uh, uh, an engineer, and he was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he wanted to make a computer, and they made it. And this was the computer, the Altair 8800 was the computer that, uh, Paul Allen saw on the, the cover of whatever computer magazine or whatever magazine it was at the time and showed Bill Gates and they realized that they had to get moving and Bill dropped out of Harvard as a result. So that was that was inspiring. And certainly, certainly Ed Roberts, uh, you know, was the right was a guy in the right place at the right time. But ironically, the right place was Albuquerque. You know, what was there about Albuquerque? There wasn't an indigenous tech industry at the time. It was just a place where people worked at the White Sands uh, Air Force Base, which was near Albuquerque. So Ed started the company, and uh, it was an incredible success in a, in a way 
And there were models that were developed that were very extremely advanced that sort of never came out. And when we interviewed him, Ed had, after he sold MITS to someone, he had decided to have a career change and he became a medical doctor. He went to medical school and had a practice in the state of Georgia. And that's where we tracked him down. And I hadn't known Ed before. So this was new to me. I mean, I knew the stories, but I didn't know Ed. And we got along famously because we're both pilots and he was very pragmatic and, you know, he, he just did what seemed logical at the time. But they were surprised at the, at the success of the Altair. And it was so successful that customers would come and camp in the car park waiting for their computers to be completed so that they could wow. take them home. And this is customers from all over America came to Albuquerque and camped in the car park. I guess people still line up for iPhones today, don't they? So uh, not much has changed. <laughs> yeah, so, well, not as much as they did, but I can certainly remember, yeah, lined up around the, around the block. And so, uh, you know, this was, it was obvious that there was a huge unmet demand for this kind of technology. And there wasn't anything you could do with it, particularly. You know, the first Altair 8800 didn't have uh, it, was paper tape. It had, it, it didn't have a keyboard. You had to f- flip toggles to load in manually the, the boot prom loader. And so, you know, you had to have this sequence memorized or on a piece of paper to run those toggle switches to get it fired up. And I had, at the time I had in my, in my cellar in Palo Alto, I had a, I had a PDP eight mini computer that was like that. And I used it to heat my house and, uh, you know, I'd have a power outage and I have to go down and when the power would come back on, I'd have to, I'd have to toggle in the, the boot prom loader. And, and I, I did it for, I'd have to do it from memory because it was dark, you know? So I'm in the dark trying to get the, the anyway, it was, it, it was another era and you certainly had to know your hardware in order to even have a chance of running your software. And I love as well in Triumph of the Nerds, you, not only did you get like the guys that founded the industry, but you got the next generation as well. And you interviewed a, a 10-year-old kid called Edwin Chin in there, who was, you know, he was a self-confessed computer nerd. Have you still kept in touch with him? And do you know what he's up to today? Yeah, he's an engineer at SpaceX. Oh, wow. And, and, and if, you, if you think about it, that's perfectly logical. You know, in 95, Edwin was, you know, nine or 10. And he came into a, uh, uh, he grew up, he went to Stanford, he got an engineering degree, he could have easily gone into the computer industry, but there were other technologies that were also interesting and exciting. And he chose to become a rocket scientist. So, you know, makes sense. Well, the follow-up documentary was Nerd 2.0.1, and that uh, focused on the internet. And uh, it was kind of following up with the team that founded Excite. Uh, really yeah. must have been an exciting time for you to cover the internet. Yeah, I think so. Um, it was, you know, we were able to do the uh, the story of the ARPANET and the people were around. Uh, uh, Bob Taylor, who was the DARPA guy who commissioned the ARPANET that became the internet, uh, was very helpful and he was available in those days. and. He just died last year, 
So uh, we got to talk to a lot of important people, you know, Vince Cerf and Ed Roberts and Steve Roberts. And there are a lot of Roberts in this business. And so, yeah, it was it was great. And we had the Excite Boys as just a prototypical Internet startup of that era. But I knew them. I had helped them already. I helped them get their first customer and their first venture capitalist. So we had a good relationship and they allowed us in. And Excite could have, you know, they could have been Google. They should have been Google. But the funny thing about it is that they they saw themselves as a media company that they got to through search when the Google boys were keenly aware that search itself was the treasure and that they didn't have to get to something else. Excite was reacting to Yahoo's success. And Yahoo didn't particularly have technology initially. They just, you know, made up lists of websites that they liked. They had a manual process, and because Excite felt somehow that they were playing catch-up with Yahoo, they thought that they would be going from a computer search thing to something more hands-on that they labeled as a media company, when in fact that was a gross error and they should have stuck with search. And just to tell you, I told them that. I made it clear to them that they were not paying enough attention to, to search and they didn't understand me at all. So, kids. Well, no, a lot of people at the time, I remember reading, you know, in like the mainstream kind of newspapers and stuff that say, you know, they're kind of talking about the fact that they thought the internet was just a fad at that stage, many of them. And I mean, even Bill Gates, he wrote the infamous internet tidal wave memo not long before you filmed that documentary. Yeah. When speaking to him, did you kind of get the impression that Bill was playing catch up at that point? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But the, the funny thing is, is how you, a lot of it has to do with how you pose the questions. Because questions that people are asking in, in that era were things like, how will the internet do against CompuServe or America Online? And, you know, those are, are, were private networks that no longer exist. And yet the assumption was that the internet was at a disadvantage and that those proprietary networks had all the power. And so if someone asks the question the right way, you end up well, you're saying, well, clearly CompuServe will be around because that's the question you ask. You know, the Internet is vulnerable when, in fact, the Internet wasn't vulnerable at all. So, you know, in retrospect, we can see things very differently than we saw them at the time. And Microsoft, because Bill thought the Internet was communism, that's how he put it, he wasn't going to have anything right. to do with it. It just it seemed to him that the whole point was to get all the information onto CD-ROMs that you could sell to people. And, uh, but in fact, you know, the world moved quickly past that. And once Bill realized that and, and wrote that, uh, that memo, which was, which was based on John Walker's memo, The Last Days of Autodesk. And uh, John Walker, founder of Autodesk, the original CAD company, uh, had retired to Switzerland believe it or not. And, uh, but he was still actively involved with the company and he wrote these, he was a sort of kind of a tax refugee in Switzerland. And he, he wrote this thing that said, you know, this is how Autodesk can die. And Bill read it and realized that if Autodesk could die, Microsoft could die. And if Microsoft could die, what would kill it 
and the only obvious thing that could kill it was the internet. Well, Bob, it's been a real insight into those classic, you know, pioneering days of the industry. And honestly, I could record another four or five hours with you, all these amazing stories that you've got easily. But obviously, so much has happened in, you know, the 25 years since Triumph of the Nerds was on. Would you ever do a part two? Well, you know, we almost did. At the end of the film, it says, see you in 10 years. And we were a month from starting uh, shooting when PBS in America pulled the plug. And I still don't understand why. You know, it's doubtful. I have a show coming out next year called uh, Startup America, which is about tech startups. And so I'm still in the business. But to follow up, to pick up from where we left off, I think think too much time has passed. Well, people can catch up with um, what you're doing now on your website, cringely.com. You keep that regularly up to date? Yeah, cringely.com. Fantastic. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your stories with us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. 